save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Welcome to Our Wild World, and today our special guest is Annette Lanjou. Having worked with wild chimpanzees, bonobos, and gorillas, Annette is a highly regarded expert in great ape conservation, as well as working extensively in conservation strategies and implementation of programs. She is the Vice President of Strategic Initiatives and Great Apes Programs with the Arcus Foundation. Arcus is a leading global foundation advancing the connectedness between social justice, conservation issues, and is built upon the cornerstones that regardless of race, gender, socioeconomic class, identity, or sexual orientation, we humans must strive to develop attitudes of acceptance, appreciation, and affirmation of all forms of diversity. Arcus Foundation is a multifaceted organization in its goals, from great ape conservation to advancing pressing social justice and conservation issues. Uh, and where this crossover lies between us humans and our non-human fellow earthlings. So at this point, I would like to welcome Annette Lenju. Hello. hello. Yes, hello, Ely. Hello, it's Ellie. It's uh, Annette. This is Ellie, and it's great to have you here. We've been trying to get this conversation going for several months when we first met at the Jackson Hole Wildlife Film Festival, and you and Arcus Foundation, along with several other great ape experts, opened up that film festival with the Great Ape Summit. So um, at this point, I'd like to just highlight that the main value system of Arcus Foundation is uh, that they adhere to is there is a profound connection between our mistreatment of human others and our mistreatment of non-human animals is a has a lot to do with not only how we treat each other and our ethics and our value systems, but how conservation initiatives uh, take place and even more so their effectiveness. So, um, you're an amazing woman, Annette, uh, just in, in the sense of trying to get a hold of you for the past several months. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and how you came to be with the Arcus Foundation. Well, I'm a primatologist by training. I studied as an undergraduate biology and psychology because I've always been very interested in behavior, behavior of both humans as well as non-humans. And from there, I went on to study the behavioral ecology of great apes and specialized in bonobos, a species of ape that's found only in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And it was while I was working in Congo studying bonobos that I became really um, touched by the uh, fact that ape habitats are disappearing, ape populations are getting smaller and smaller, and mainly due to human behavior, human activities in their, in their ranges where they, where they occur. And so conservation and the protection of ape species became something that I wanted to focus on and, and focus my career on. 
But it also it was very, very clear that despite the narrative that so many people um, apply on conservation and saying that, you know, local people in Africa and Asia are, are killing the apes and hunting them for food or destroying their habitat, that so much of that is actually driven by the human need for resources and desire for resources, and that that need and that consumption is driven very much by rich countries, um, including Europe and North America. And so it's, it's false to look at conservation as a problem that occurs far away in remote parts of Africa and is a result of people not caring about wildlife and destroying their habitat for their own, for their own gain. Okay, so we can, we can understand that. That's a, a pretty clear uh, statement right there. What I'd like to learn more and what I think you're, you're able to tell us is this bridge uh, between social issues, and we're going to get a little more into some of the cornerstones of ARCUS, because ARCUS is a unique organization. In all the years that I've been doing wildlife conservation, I haven't come across an organization quite like ARCUS. Your cornerstones are about social equality, gender equality, and great ape conservation. So how does this come together? Um, I think we can answer the question of how it comes together in one moment, but I think we also need to look at them as separate issues. The Arcus Foundation is looking at two mission areas. One is social justice, specifically focused on uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people around the world. And the other mission area is conservation, specifically focusing on the conservation and welfare of great apes around the world. And those are two issues, and they can be seen as two totally separate issues that the Arcus Foundation considers extremely important and to some extent also insufficiently addressed. And therefore, it has chosen to focus on those two issues. Now, once you start digging under the surface and looking at the roots of human behavior, both towards LGBT people as well as towards non-human animals, you can see that there are similarities and that some of those roots are common. And those are the roots of excluding others from your area of concern and your area of empathy. And that's where you can start seeing commonalities. But I think we need to be careful that we don't always look at these issues as one there are very significant differences between um, the challenges as well as the opportunities of addressing social justice issues for LGBT people, as well as the challenges and opportunities in conservation and the well-being of non-human animals that live around the world. So there are both commonalities as well as significant differences. I'd say one of the commonalities from looking through your information and talking to you previous, previously excuse me, is we, is you've talked about how we humans see others, and I've got that in little quote marks, whether it be other people, other cultures, um, 
other orientated people sexually or handicapped or challenged as less than human. And you've called this a phenomenon called dehumanization. How does this process happen in a culture or an individual? And further, how does it affect the bond between us humans to each other as a community and to our community of wildlife and the rest of the world? Well, Ellie, that's a complicated question. You yes, it is, but me, I think you're the woman are, to answer it. Uh, there are many, many different elements to that question. I think that the process of dehumanization is a process that humans use all over the world. When we choose to care about someone, we focus on the similarities. We focus on what we can see in them that we can empathize with, we can sympathize with, we can understand. And so when we um, love animals or are interested in animals, often we anthropomorphize them. We make them, we, we focus on where they are similar to us to draw out from us the emotional connection and the desire to nurture and care for those other species. And when we do the opposite, when we want to denigrate or exploit or utilize another species, we focus on their otherness and there where they're different. And given that we humans have a tendency to think of ourselves, human beings, as the closest there is to godliness, and this is actually even enshrined in, in many religions, particularly the um, Abrahamic faiths, where we consider that humans were created in the image of God and that we are the closest to God, then everything that's farther away from us humans is even farther away from God and less than us. And we put ourselves in the top of a hierarchy where we are the best, we are the closest to God, and everything else comes below us. And so that process of dehumanization is often used to push others away from us and to distance ourselves from them. And that allows us then to not consider their well-being or their welfare or whether they are suffering or feel pain or, or whether we are hurting them in some way or another. And we do that to other animals, non-human animals, but we also do that to other people. And our history is rife with examples of us dehumanizing other humans, whether they are men dehumanizing women and considering them as property or dehumanizing people of different ethnicity and different race or different religions, and even to the point of considering people from other countries, other nationalities, other belief systems as less than us and not worthy of our consideration. And you can see that used in, in immigration debates around the world. So this process of dehumanization and considering others as different and therefore not worthy of our empathy, our consideration for their well-being is a very common one. And we use language, dehumanizing language, to make that even more real. For example, during the genocide in Rwanda, when um, the, the, the Hutus were um, planning and then carrying out their extermination of the, the Tutsis, they called them cockroaches. Um, the Nazis called Jewish people rats and vermin. We use animal language in order to emphasize the fact that these other people 
are not like us. They're different. They're less than humans. They are dehumanized. And we did that with slaves. We've done that with people throughout history. And we do that with non-human animals. Obviously, it's, they aren't human, so we dehumanize them by emphasizing their difference, emphasizing their savagery, their ignorance, their stupidity, the fact that they, that they have no feelings. When the evidence is overwhelming that they do have feelings, that they are capable of suffering, and that they are sentient and intelligent creatures. We've been doing a lot of work lately on Our Wild World talking about this very, very subject, this dehumanization of each other and of placing humans on this hierarchical ladder that you were talking about. So when you're dealing with Arcus Foundation or the work that you do and Great Ape Conservation, how do you go about uh, bridging this gap? How do you go about leveling this playing field, so to speak, in those cultures and in those areas that have a very different perspective? How do you bring that together so that the conservation efforts that you are putting into place um, have a better chance for success and a positive outcome? I think you have to have a multiple um, uh, arms or multiple strategies at your disposal that you can use. There is no one strategy fits all that's going to work both in um, the central, you know, Congolese forests as well as in Southeast Asia as well as in North America or the Netherlands. You basically need to have different strategies for different levels of understanding and um, contact with the problem. In some countries, people depend on hunting animals for food, and they have no other source of protein. They basically need to go out into the forest and hunt so that they can feed themselves and and their children. So in those countries, you're not going to talk about Um, the fact that these animals suffer and that therefore we shouldn't hunt them and instead we should become vegetarians. In those countries, you would have a totally different strategy. So sometimes you need to get in touch with them on an emotional level. Sometimes you need to get in touch with them at an intellectual level. And sometimes you need to be very pragmatic and focus on alternative livelihood strategies and find ways in which people can live and survive without harming others. I'm very glad to hear you say this because you just brought up a really important point that is having a great effect on conservation today. And that is um, the fact, the the different uh, mindsets and perceptions that we've got going on. We're here in the West. We have a very active and rather extreme animal rights community where no animal should ever be harmed for the purpose of human gain, trophy hunting, or like what happened in the Copenhagen Zoo where they killed this baby giraffe. So you just brought it up to the point that in some cultures, this is not going to happen, that animal rights is not going to be the first thing that comes to the debate table. Uh, do you see in your work, I'm going off, off, uh, off the reservation a little bit here, but do you see in your work where animal rights, um, this, this, this social thinking that puts animal rights above human rights, do you find it is getting in the way of work in areas that you had just talked about, these cultures that this has no meaning to? How, how do you go about um, 
getting there and how do you deal with animal rights activism where you're working? There, um, the, the animal rights question and the question of which animals should have rights and rights to what is complex. And I think everybody's going to have a different opinion about that. And I don't think there is a right answer or a wrong answer. I think that there have to be answers that are pragmatic and that take into consideration the needs and desires of different groups. Um, what you just brought up was described at great, in, in some detail in a book that's just come out um, called The Politics of Species that is focusing on reshaping our relationship with other animals. And together with Professor Raymond Corby of the University of Leiden and myself, we edited this, and it brings together expertise from a whole range of different fields, from the medical field, legal field, philosophy, psychology, um, animal rights, as well as conservation and animal welfare. And it talks about specifically the relationship of humans to other animals and the political element, the power element and the use of power that is so much a part of that relationship. And I think that there are many chapters in the book, and I think they all present a very different take on that specific question. Well, thank you for bringing up that. Um, that's I'm definitely adding to my to-read list, and I would strongly urge our listeners to pick that up because this is a very, very big process, paradigm shift that is happening across the world today, not only in terms of people, but in terms of wildlife conservation. And on this note, we're going to take a short break. Stick with us. We're with Annette Lanjou of the Arcus Foundation, great eight expert and author, and a very fascinating, exciting woman. So stick with us. We'll be right back. Save on your prescriptions with the RX Savings Plus drug discount card offered by Voice America. It is not insurance and discounts are only available from participating pharmacies, but 9 out of 10 pharmacies participate nationwide. Start saving today. Print your free card online at voiceamerica.rxsavingsplus.com or text the word talk radio to 96362. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. 
Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. Welcome back to Our Wild World with Ellie Weiss and Annette Lanjou. We're having a fascinating conversation about how human perceptions of seeing others as less than human and how these ethics and our treatment of others affects not only our relationships to each other, but how conservation efforts work. Um, we've been talking a bit about the rights of people, the rights of animals, differing uh mindsets and perspectives that are all going to have effect on social cultures, individuals, and conservation outcomes. Annette, what do you think our our moral obligation to other people, our planet and animals, is? Where does that fall in, and how do we engender this concept and context in unstable areas due to either civil unrest or widespread poverty. I know uh, Arcus Foundation is very involved in social justice um, besides gay rights, lesbian community. How do we tie um, this, how do we tie this uh, ethical treatment into, of social justice into other areas that are not as uh, well off or have the access that we do here in the West? Um. There are uh, a number of uh, ways in which I can answer that question because there's a number of different strands to that question. There's the first strand, which is about our moral obligation towards others. And you can look at a moral obligation from a religious perspective, from a philosophical perspective, um, or just from a, a humane perspective of wanting to do the right thing for all species. And it's very personal. It depends on your belief system, your culture, your experiences that you have had. And we all come to this with an enormous amount of baggage, which influence, is influenced by our culture, our psychology, our experience, and our, our lived um, world. So there is no way I can say this is what it should be. I can tell you what my personal vi- vision is for how it should be, and that can be summed up very simply in the words respectful coexistence. I believe very strongly that we are sharing a planet with a whole host of other species. We're also sharing the planet with a very diverse human species, all sorts of different people with different cultures, different backgrounds, languages, experiences, as well as Um, sexual orientation and gender identity. And that rich diversity is what makes life worth living. And it's really about all living together and respecting each other and respecting the space that we need and the space that others need. And so from my perspective, it's a question of respectful coexistence. 
It doesn't mean denying myself what I need. It means respecting that others also have needs and trying to accommodate that So in, in, in there we can include agreeing to disagree. So that you brought up an interesting point. I, I work in Africa and a lot of other countries. You work all over the world, far beyond um, some of my experiences. But in many of these cultures, uh, sexual orientation has a, a very negative uh, connotation with it. In many countries in Africa, being gay or being a lesbian is completely not accepted. We've heard in Uganda and other places that uh, they are tormented or killed and made public pariahs. So how does Arcus, with this focus on social justice and gender equality, how how do you or do you bring that into play when you're working in other cultures? Um, I think that what discriminating others on the basis of a difference that has no moral value is wrong. And that's what I believe. Um, we work in countries where there are diverse opinions but those diverse opinions and those um, draconian and, to some extent, um, cruel laws used to exist in, in our country as well. I mean, in the United States and throughout Europe, it, uh, we had as much discrimination and as much um, hatred, and still there are, are remnants of that left um, today. I mean, there are still people in New York, for example, who get... Um, killed for being gay. And so I don't think we can speak about Africa being one way and the U.S. or the Netherlands being a different way. I think that we have diverse opinions and very, very different and very radical views in each of those countries. And it's a process of time and it's a process of sensitization that will move people forward towards a world of more respectful coexistence and towards more tolerance, more openness, more appreciation of that diversity. I think getting to know people and talking about it and being allowed to talk about it will make a huge difference. Now, where there are problems of conservation and where habitats are being destroyed and populations of wildlife being exterminated are often also the same places where there are um, very, very um, horrific laws against homosexuality and the expression of homosexuality. And so, yes, we do confront some of those same questions, but they're not dealt with in the same way. We don't necessarily conflate those when we are trying to address either conservation issues or social justice issues. You have to be careful that we talk about different people and about very sensitive subjects and I think it's really important for people to have information to help them understand how to do things differently and how things can be done differently. But they also have to have an emotional connection to the issue. And that often comes from exposure and talking to people and getting to know people. So this is where Arcus Foundation and your diverse platform mission, um, these two pillars that you uh, that, that Arcus is founded upon social justice, gender equality, and great ape conservation and effective conservation outcomes. Uh, do you get 
political are you political activists or do you stay sort of on the side and help provide uh as you just said information access and perspective and point of view to help communities that um are typically uh lacking or or confronted with widespread poverty poverty and the uh concept of just survival for the day how does arcus go about uh and, and you personally go about when this comes up in an area that you're trying to implement conservation. How do you go about dealing with this sensitive issue? Can you give us an example? Well, first of all, I think we are not um, in the least bit shy about making our views and our position known. And you only need to go to our website to know exactly what we think. So from the perspective of being blunt, being honest, and very transparent with respect to our motivations um, and our goals, I think that, that that definitely holds true for the Arcus Foundation. We say what we think and we don't hide it. We don't try to be, we're not shy about it whatsoever. However, we are a private foundation and we have 501c3 status in the United States which makes active lobbying and ad advocacy illegal for us. So there are a number of things that we as a private charitable foundation in the U.S. cannot do. And so we cannot lobby for laws. We cannot push for those kinds of things. What we can do is we can provide information. We can help educate the public. We can provide the materials that will help them make informed guesses and achieve culture change. And if you look at the main goal of the work that we do and the work that we support, it's culture change work. It's culture change that will lead to behavior change. So culture change through education, through the emotional connection and the cultural connection, and then through that culture change, changing people's behaviors and their attitudes so that the lived experience of LGBT people around the world, as well as um, non-human animals around the world can be improved. Wow, that that was a mouthful right there, and I'm still absorbing all of that, and it's fascinating. And yes, you are very blunt, and I noticed that at uh, Jackson Hole Wildlife Film Festival when you came right out uh, in the middle of this crowd who really was... Um, I'm not sure they were prepared for your statement, but it's what attracted me to want to have you as a guest is we need to change our conservation model. Um, it, it's, it has, it's not working. So including the, these core mission uh, fundamentals of Arcus and what you've just told us, I think that is a very good beginning of this paradigm shift in changing the model of conservation. What do you see as the future model of conservation, including and incorporating everything we've just talked about? How do you think, see that it's got to change? I think we need to, um, with respect to conservation, there has been a very um, narrow view of what conservation actually means, because many people still look at conservation of, let's use, for example, polar bears, tigers, elephants, and great apes, iconic flagship species that everyone in the world is aware of. Everybody knows that they are highly endangered. Um, most people don't eat them, so we aren't really using them and exploiting them. And so we look at it as something that's happening 
far away in remote places and is being done to them by people living in those countries. And so we sit in the relative comfort of our homes and say, oh, those Africans or those Asians or those whoever they are, are destroying their environments and cutting down all the forests and killing all these animals. And isn't it terrible what they're doing? What we don't do is look to ourselves and see what behavior of mine is leading, is causing that to happen. And almost all the destruction that we see and the number one ground for animals becoming endangered in specifically the tigers, the elephants, the rhinos, the, the, um, the great apes, is loss of habitat and killing of the animals. Killing of the animals because people want their body parts, whether it's ivory or rhino horn, and loss of the habitat because we're clearing the forest either for the timber or to plant monocultures of industrial-scale um, plantations, whether it's palm oil, rubber, cocoa, whatever it happens to be. And where are all those resources going? They are going to rich countries who can afford to buy them. So it is about what we are doing and what our expectations are and what we want in the world. And it's about levels of consumption. So until we take on responsibility and recognize that it's our behavior that's driving much of this destruction and that we need to work with those countries that still have the last populations of these animals and that we work with them as real partners, then we can change the model of conservation. So in the past, it was a question of giving them money and doing the conservation work there and stopping all those people from killing all those wonderful animals. And what we now need to recognize is they need much more than little handouts given through conservation NGOs like WWF or Conservation International or whoever it happens to be. What we need to do is we need to change our behavior, our consumption behavior, and our economic model, which is based on this very idealistic view that resources have no limit and that we can continue to extract resources and that there will never be an end to that. This is amazing because you have just tied together about three months worth of our Wild World programs into one very beautifully concise sentence. We need to change our behaviors, and that means us here in the developed world. A radical shift is required if we're requesting or wanting other cultures to shift their perspective and save their wildlife, then it's going to require a radical shift in our thinking, the conservationists and the old model of implementing solutions on a population that has a very different resource base, a very different view of their resources, and a very different culture. So that leads me into a project that uh, the Arcus Foundation is working on called Linking Conservation and Poverty Alleviation, the Case of Great Apes. How is that? How does that project work and what's its goal? Um, well, the project is exactly as the title says. It's looking for solutions that will both benefit the local people who are often living with very few alternatives in poverty and conserving the landscapes and the wildlife that they are dependent on and that will ensure the health of the environment that both the wildlife and the humans are dependent on. Now, it sounds very utopian. It sounds probably in the, the 
eyes of most of the people who will be listening to this as something that, you know, well, we can never achieve that. But there have been examples, and there are numerous case studies where we're actually trying to demonstrate how well that could work, but it does require a paradigm shift. It does require taking in the conservation and the environmental questions right into the early phases of the planning of the poverty alleviation and economic development models. So perhaps next time we do a Millennium Goal outline, we should put at the top environment and uh, wildlife and resources as opposed to health education. They're all tied together. Um, I've noticed from reading through your website, which once again is arcusfoundation.org, and that's spelled A-R-C-U-S, and there's a stunning amount of incredible information available, not only about Annette and the work that they do, but the conservation programs that they have implemented that are successful. On your website and through talking to you, um, I'm going to paraphrase some of the things you said. Great ape ranges coincide with some of the poorest countries in the world, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. How do we ensure that conservation strategies can be implemented here? And how does our close genetic relationship with the great apes help your conservation efforts towards securing a future for them and the people who live with them? Well, we... um are working with some of the poorest people in the world. These are the people who have also been neglected by all the economic development projects that have been ongoing in these countries, where there's been huge efforts to create um, models and projects that are going to benefit people. And the people that it tends to benefit are those who are in a position to access the resources and get the jobs and participate in all the benefits that are surrounding and that are associated with those projects, the poorest people are the ones who have the least access to education, the least access to those opportunities, and they are the ones who are often the most dependent on the environment for their survival. So damaging the environment, whether it's cutting down trees or polluting the water, hurts them disproportionately and much, much more than anyone else. And there are many examples of that, from um, Sabah in uh, northern Borneo to the Congo. And so the question really is finding those, those communities and working with them so that they can see how they can benefit from and protect the very environment that they are dependent on and raising and elevating their voices so that they actually will speak out and speak out in a powerful way to influence policies. And so we've been working with local communities in Uganda, as well as in Sumatra, in Indonesia, as well as in other parts of the world, to help them fight for their environment and for their livelihoods. And so, in a sense, they are our strongest allies, and we are working together with them in order to conserve these landscapes. This is wonderful. Uh, Arcus Foundation, which is a much larger organization than Wild Eyes, we have very similar goals that without the input and the recognition and the willingness, excuse me, of the local people where we are seeing that biodiversity hotspots need to be protected, that um, when you include the local people, the stakeholders, we call them stakeholders, and um, the elders and the traditional uh, culture and um, the storytelling and their historical 
uh, life ways that we have a much better chance in conservation to have success, excuse me, successful outcomes. Uh, can you tell us about some of the other projects Arcus has been working on? Uh, Are you asking about projects where we are working with local communities and uh, trying to benefit and and ensure that the benefits flow to local communities as well as as conservation benefits? I'd say both. Right. Well, you know, for example, we're working in uh, Uganda with an organization called Village Enterprise Fund together with the Jane Goodall Institute and the Royal Zoological Society of Scotland to protect the population of chimpanzees, but at the same time to also work with the local communities to ensure that they benefit from that protection, that they are, um, that they have options and alternatives for livelihood activities that are currently um, destroying the, the environment and harming the chimpanzees, and working with them as allies to ensure that they both are um, really pulling together and working in the same direction. And that's just one example of the type of approach that we believe very strongly in. We are very much focused on an integrated landscape approach where we work together with various different communities, not just local people who are often marginalized and poor, but also with government officials, with policymakers, with bilateral and multilateral aid agencies, and with conservation NGOs so that together we can find common ground and work in the same direction. Well, this is amazing. So um, I want to continue this conversation a bit more. Right now we're going to head into another break. So um, once again, our listeners can find out more about Arcus Foundation at arcusfoundation.org. And there is um, a wealth of information there and about their staff and the background of the amazing variety and diverse um, people that work with Arcus from, uh, from all over the world to help bring their mission and goals forward. So stick with us. We'll be right back after the break. what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? 
W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to Our Wild World. Welcome back to Our Wild World with our guest, Annette Lanjou and the Arcus Foundation. Annette has given us an astonishing wealth of information on how humans perceive others, uh, not only other human beings, but uh, other non-human beings, and how these perceptions relate to uh, how we live with each other and live with wildlife. Uh, Annette, there's... Specific pillars or cornerstones as to how Arcus Foundation operates. Could you expand a little bit more on that and how this is going to help us move forward as a species of humans and living better on this earth as a resource? Okay, well, the Arcus Foundation is working really on three specific goals on the Great Ape side of the of the mission. The first goal we've been talking about quite a bit already and that's focusing on reconciling economic development and conservation objectives and trying to find the common ground and working together to achieve that. The second goal is focused on building a stronger conservation movement so that it acts as a movement rather than as a whole number of disparate organizations with separate goals and and ideals. And the third goal is focusing specifically on increasing and improving the respect for the, for the great apes. And that is focused very much on what we were talking about earlier in the program on the culture and behavior change and attitudes towards non-human species and their, uh, the desire for respectful coexistence on this planet. Now, as you can see, there are specific concrete projects that are um, emphasized in each of those three areas, projects such as the work being carried out by Hutan in um, Sabah, uh, northern Borneo, um, linking human needs with conservation needs and trying to ensure that orangutans are protected, but that people also can live with orangutans, with the wildlife, and benefit from the presence of the forest. And then there are, sorry, did you? No, go ahead. Oh, and then there are projects that are focusing on policy issues, issues of how we extract resources, how large companies move into areas um, in, whether it's in Myanmar, whether it's in the Democratic Republic of Congo, or in Guinea, and how those large Companies extract resources, impact the environment, and end up having both negative impacts on humans as well as on non-human species and the forests. And trying to change practice and change policy that governs that behavior. 
And then again, there's also about building up organizations, enabling organizations to work effective, more effectively together and collaborate more effectively and look at these problems as integrated approaches to complex problems that require a whole wealth and diverse array of inputs that need development inputs, health inputs, education inputs, policy inputs, conservation inputs, science inputs, all those different efforts so that together they can address the needs in a holistic way. And then there's also the more cultural work. There's the work that tries to expose people to some of the stories as well as some of the science that shows how sentient many species are and how much they are harmed and hurt by human behavior and how much we can change our behavior to improve their lives. And that's the kind of work that the book, The Politics of Species, is trying to highlight and emphasize. So many different strategies, but our work, the work of the Arcus Foundation, is really only important in that we support the work of others on the ground. We support the work of our partner organizations who are doing the work on the ground, who are actually the ones who are facing the challenges in a day-to-day and a very direct way. And those partners come from every nationality you can imagine. And I think it's a fallacy that exists in many people's minds that it's European and North American conservationists who go to these countries to save the wildlife. The most important and the most significant conservationists are the people from those range countries, the Africans and the Asians and the Latin Americans and the people who are living in those countries, living in the villages near the forests, and who are the most ardent, passionate, and dedicated conservationists. So our work really is there to support them and to help them and give them a voice as well as the resources they need to do their work. So really, we're, we're talking a several-pronged front here. Um, first off, here in the developed modern uh, Western world, where we are consuming ourselves to death along with the planet and the effects that our consumption has on those who consume the least and live where these resources are being extracted. And then, as you said, how the companies and industries of the Western world, where the wealth is, they're extractive and exploitative policies. So Arcus Foundation works in terms of advocacy on the ground, not political activism, but advocacy to help people, as you said, find their voice, to speak up for themselves, to protect their own resources and, and understand how these resources will keep them going for the future. And I'm assuming here, and you can let us know, that the importance of their resources and the wildlife to the ecosystem, the role it plays, yes? Yes, absolutely. It's all part of one whole, and each piece of that whole is an essential piece for the whole to function. And do you find in the in these communities where there is a lack of education or a lack of conceptual, the ability to conceptualize what you're talking about, what uh, what happens there? How do you how do you bring that together? Uh, I've worked with uh, communities in Bushmanland that re- their language, their culture, really doesn't encompass some of these concepts. How do you how do you bring that about? Well, I can only give you an example because, of course, every village, every culture, every tribe is different and a different thing will, will work for them. But I'll give you an example. Um, we are supporting a 
um, group who are working with film to try and demonstrate how important it is to conserve certain species. This, this group, INSEF, is working together in, with the, um, uh, sorry, the Lukuru Wildlife Research Foundation um, to actually help in the Lomami of forest of the Democratic Republic of Congo, one of the strongholds for the bonobo. And through this process of showing films and talking to villagers, they initially were telling them, you know, when the hunters go out, they used to be able to hunt and within a day come back with X kilos of meat. Now they go out and they have to spend many, many days in the forest and they come back with much less. And the people understand that that's because there's fewer animals and the animals are much more shy of people than they used to be. And it's much harder to make a living from hunting. But when you just talk to them about the animals will go extinct, they're becoming rare, people don't understand it. They don't really believe you. And it's really when you start showing them films and talking to them about the behavior of the bonobos, and when people start seeing how similar the bonobos are to humans and how the behavior is so recognizable, where we can actually watch them and understand what's going on in these animals in their heads that suddenly people start saying, oh, but we don't want to kill these people, these animals. They're, they're just like us. When they see a, a female bonobo holding her baby and breastfeeding it, they suddenly say, well, well, we shouldn't be killing these animals. So in a sense, what we recognized in that area, or what the INSEF and the, uh, the Lomami, the people working in the Lomami recognized, was that Actually, it wasn't an intellectual approach that was having the most impact. It was a much more emotional connection with the animals that was having the impact. And so that strategy is a very important strategy for them to understand and to tailor a conservation education approach in that way so that it's meaningful to the people who are hearing the story. The other radical thing that they did which made it so much stronger, is that the narrators of the story were people from the village themselves. Rather than having scientists and experts from the U.S. coming and telling them things about the forest, it was people that they knew, people whose faces they recognized, who were telling them things about the forest. And therefore, they were so much more trustworthy. And they believed what they said because they knew them. And they knew that these people knew about the forest. So I, lo I love what you... Yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just saying the combination of these strategies of reaching people at an emotional level as well as using people, presenting the messages in a way that is so much more believable and true for them is actually a very, very smart strategy. And this is the kind of learning that people who are working on the ground and doing this powerful work are learning and are using to improve the conservation approaches. Well, I think right there you just summed up very well a critical aspect of how the model of conservation has to change. Over the last 50 to 100 years, we can see it's not working. And here in the West, we have a very emotional connection to other countries, other people's wildlife, because we're losing so much of our own, uh, which is it's 
you know, a, a series of episodes that I've been working on also for our listeners. But by engaging that emotional connection is very, very different than the scientific academic approach. So it's thrilling to hear that you've, um, that you're incorporating that. So out of curiosity, you mentioned the Lakuru Wildlife Research Center. Are you familiar with Dr. Joe Thompson? Yes, of course. She runs the Rulukuru Wildlife Research Center. She's a very good friend of mine. Wild Eyes has funded their work. She's made incredible strides. And uh, we've got some time here just a little bit. Uh, Bonobos are a fascinating animal. They are one of the great apes. But they're very different than chimpanzees and gorillas. Give us just a little clue of how close and how closely related in social behaviors bonobos are to us. Well, the one thing that everybody knows about bonobos and is fascinated about with bonobos is their sexual behavior. And it's been very well documented, and I believe that in our culture we find it very amusing and titillating. Personally, there are other elements of bonobo behavior that I find um, even more fascinating than their sexual behavior. Um, Not that their sexual behavior is not absolutely fascinating and interesting and very inventive, but... I personally feel that the bonobos have developed a female-centered society where the females form the core of the social groups, and the males are more peripheral to that core, and that's completely diametrically opposed to the way chimpanzees behave, despite the fact that most non-specialists would look at a bonobo and a chimpanzee and not necessarily be able to see the difference. They look very similar. They occur and behave in many ways in very similar ways, but that's a fundamental difference that's at the root of their society. The bonobo social structure is is formed by core female alliances, and then the males associate with those females. And that determines where they move, where they go, and the whole society. And that's different from chimps, different from gorillas, different from orangutans, different from most apes, and actually different from humans probably as well, although there are some human societies where, where you see that. So that's a fascinating element of bonobo behavior. Well, it sounds like we could learn a lot from bonobos and that we have. And just for our listeners to understand about the sexual conduct of bonobos, um, it's been likened to make love, not war, rather than work out their differences through violence. And as Annette just said, a more matriarchal-led society, um, violence is not the answer to finding a way to solve a disagreement. The bonobos work through caring, caressing, family units, and um, I'm, for the lack of a better word at the moment, control male behavior, or um, I can't think of another word at the moment, help male behavior work better within the community by uh, these emotional displays of friendship versus violence. Uh, we have uh, like 30 seconds until we need to close. So um, is there any last-minute takeaway that you would like uh, our audience to uh, have today? Um, yes, there's two, two short points that I would like to make. I just want to make a small 
uh, comment on uh, your last point about the violence, and I just want to say that we shouldn't also overemphasize the violence in chimpanzee society. They're often seen as the more demonic of the apes, and um, I have spent three years living with a group of chimpanzees and saw precious little violence and a lot of cooperation and harmony and very strong social bonds. And yes, perhaps they are more aggressive than bonobos, but they are not as aggressive as they are often made out to be. And most of the aggression that has been seen both in the wild and in captivity is due to duress that has been imposed on them by humans. And yes, then they fight back, and so they should. Um, And then my last point I just wanted to mention is that we do have a Twitter and Facebook account at Arcus for those who are interested in connecting with us and learning more, and that's at Arcus Great Apes. So if anybody wants more information, then they're very welcome to connect with us. And thank you so much. It sounds like we have a lot to learn from what Arcus has to offer and from what Arcus has learned about how our wild work world works. So again, I'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in. And until next week, this is Ellie Weiss. And thank you so much, Annette, for joining us today. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now.